Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seeley, GIA's Programs Manager. Today we continue with our Arts Advocacy Online Learning Series, and we're joined by Eddie Torres, Grantmakers in the Arts President and CEO, Carrie McCarthy, GIA Board Vice Chair and the New York Community Trust Program Director of Thriving Communities, Arts and Historic Preservation, and San San Wong, GIA Board Member and Bar Foundation Director of Arts and Creativity. They take a deeper dive into a discussion about what foundations and funders can do to support advocacy and lobbying efforts and strategies for funders in the current national landscape. Welcome, Eddie. Welcome, Carrie. And welcome, San San. Thank you for joining us. Eddie, for all of our listeners, can you provide a bit more context to our conversation today and tell us what is happening at Capitol Hill that we should be concerned about? Thank you, Sherilyn. So as you know, we're seeing this federal administration's proposed federal 2019 budget eliminating the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, in addition to severely rescinding support for the Institute of Museum and Library Services and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, we're seeing risks to public services in the proposed tax overhaul through the caps on state and local tax deductions. We're also seeing cities across the nation developing cultural plans. Now, ideally, these are opportunities for advocacy for equitable cultural policies and practices. In light of all these challenges, we'd like to discuss how you've used advocacy and lobbying to support your work in cultural communities. So I want to put this opening question out to Kerry and Sansan, and I'll ask you to um, both take turns at responding to it. Why is it so critical for foundations and funders to support lobbying and advocacy, especially now? This is Carrie. Thank you all for having me here. It's important to remember that effective systems change requires support for lobbying and advocacy. While in philanthropy, we can make grants for direct services, the amount of money that we're spending compared to what government can spend is very small. And a lot of folks talk about philanthropy as a gnat that flies around the head of an elephant with the elephant being government. And the idea here is that with philanthropy, we're trying to encourage government to work more effectively, to work stronger, to better serve its constituents. And, and so th I think that is the role that lobbying and advocacy can play. And thank you for having me. This is Sansan. And I agree with what Carrie's saying. And I wanted to just reemphasize that philanthropy can help identify and initiate some uh, solutions to problems, but we need government to actually scale up the solutions. So I think that at this time, it's critically important for us to support advocacy to ensure that the values of social change, healthy communities, healthy society, thriving democracy are practiced and are elevated at this time. And that's what the support around advocacy can do now in terms of re-emphasizing the values that our communities hold and making sure that they are being represented in a democratic way. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. So let me ask you, I mean, again, I'll, I'll start with Kerry and then go to Sansan. In your experience, how have you ensured that lobbying and advocacy efforts were a part of your portfolio? Sure. At the New York Community Trust, arts advocacy has been for many years a key plank in our grant-making strategy. But the reality 
that I was seeing as a new program officer nine years ago was that no one was actually asking us uh, for money to fund arts advocacy. And we were coming up at a moment uh, four years ago where we had a new mayor in the city and we were looking at the arts advocacy community to see how they might step in and advance a strong agenda after 12 years of a very strong arts mayor. And we realized that a number of the central arts advocacy groups had actually gone out of business or closed since the recession of 2008. And so we began looking at how we could bring the disparate networks of advocates together to work more effectively. And so we created the New York City Cultural Agenda Fund with the Lambert Foundation and a number of other foundations across the city to do just that, to promote arts advocacy, build cultural equity, and advance cultural policy. Fantastic. Sunsun? Um, so very similarly, in Boston, about five years ago, we had the race for a new mayor of Boston. And this is after a incumbent mayor who had been in place for 20 years. Um, and so it was a moment of opportunity that we wanted to take advantage of. And while Massachusetts had had some advocacy efforts, its organization had closed down and then had six years ago restarted again. So I think that For us, part of it was seeing that there was this moment in time that we wanted to take advantage of. And from that mayoral campaign moved into a cultural planning process to continue the mobilization of community in making sure that they had a voice and a platform. But I'm going to step back a moment and just talk a little bit about, you know, your question of advocacy and our portfolio. So In coming to BAR, one of our core strategies is activating public support for arts and creativity. And so in that, we've built advocacy into our strategy areas. And so as part of that strategy, we have ensuring that there's an advocacy infrastructure that is strong and healthy and ready to act when the policy window opens. As part of that, we also are looking to build data research and analysis that helps enable cultural policy to develop. Our short-term electoral strategy is supporting advocacy organizations around electoral campaigns to make sure that influencers have strong knowledge and value of the arts and know that their constituency value the arts. So in this way, really seeing the arts community as a voting block. Um, And we have a long-term strategy that's around building public will for the arts. So this is a seven to 10 year strategy where we're looking to shift how people value arts and creativity and how they incorporate that into their daily lives. And then lastly, one of our areas of work is around media and visibility. So ensuring that there's high visibility for arts and the breadth of the kind of work that there is so that it's not only larger or more established organizations that are represented in media, but also a lot of smaller grassroots organizations and new forms that are represented. You know, so for us, I think to ensure that advocacy, we want to make sure that it's built into our strategy portfolio. 
fantastic. I'm going to ask a follow-up question. Uh, I'm going to ask it of Kerry and Sansa, and please feel free to weigh in if it uh, resonates with you as well. Sansa made the remark, making sure that the breadth of work that is being produced in the cultural community gets seen. And Kerry, I know that was an element of what the Cultural Agenda Fund was doing in terms of informing the values that get brought to discussions of cultural advocacy, also in terms of issues of equity. Would you like to talk a little bit about the work that is being done to inform the advocacy community about issues of equity? Sure. Um, When we first began convening the arts advocates together, we realized that there were a bunch of people in the room who were really strong vocal advocates around racial equity and cultural equity. And then there were also folks who were just beginning to explore what that meant for them and the scope of their work. And so one of the things we did was we created a cultural advocacy and equity program that was designed to bring advocates together and give them a series of trainings that would ground them all in uh, a racial justice framework that was provided by uh, Race Forward. And Race Forward did such a great job, we ended up hiring them a second time to come in and provide a larger larger training for more cultural organizations um, outside of outside of the advocacy community. So that was one key thing. Um, I think the other piece was that when the city was looking, when New York City was looking at creating its first ever cultural plan, we wanted to be sure that those voices that might not be amplified in the um, planning process were amplified. And so we uh, ended up making a series of grants to uh, various coalitions of arts advocates to convene their key stakeholders and look at what they thought key recommendations would be for New York City's cultural plan. While the city had a very robust civic participation process for the cultural plan, we were also supporting about another 10 to 12 groups to do that in their own communities. And as a result, we had the Amarenda bringing together the Native American population in New York City, which I think is second only to Santa Fe in the country. We had groups coming together in from uh, Latinx arts groups in the Lower East Side coming together, Staten Island arts groups coming together to look at what were the important recommendations they wanted to see in the city's cultural plan. They documented the findings from their multiple meetings and convenings and had an inside track to the folks who were actually writing the cultural plan. They were able to put those papers together, pass them on, and then got fed up to the Department of Cultural Affairs. And many of the recommendations ended up, in fact, being in the city's cultural plan, but many did not. And what was so exciting for us was that when a group of arts advocates came together before the city released its cultural plan, these people created and released and promoted the people's cultural plan, which had many of the findings that were in these reports. And so that was, that was terrific. Fantastic. Sansan, is there anything that you'd like to uh, talk about in these regards? 
Um, I would say that I think in Boston, we're still in a learning mode around what racial and cultural equity would look like and how that would be enacted, especially in a philanthropic sense in terms of the distribution of resources. So I think that early on, um, there's very much the desire, particularly with the history of racial segregation in Boston, in the school districts, and in the neighborhoods, to address the issues of racial equity. So our city took a lead on this in hiring a chief resiliency officer to focus on racial equity. I think the arts community was as interested, but a little bit slower in trying to understand what it means. And so I think that we've put it into the cultural plan, but part of our work now really has to be very intentional kind of learning agenda to understand how does racial and cultural equity differ? What does this mean in terms of the history and the legacy of institutionalized racism in our city? How do we support and empower communities that have been disinvested in for a long time? So I think funders as a community are beginning to try and understand what our role is, what are these different definitions, how do we begin our conversations about this, and then can we work with the city to have a agenda that is coherent and thoughtful and recognizes that this is a long-standing problem. So I really applaud what's happening in New York. Um, I just think that our city is in a slightly different place around kind of learning how we t- can thoughtfully approach this. Sansan, you say you're in a place of learning, and yet we ended up turning to you and to the city of Boston, the the woman, Julie Burroughs, who's running the city of Boston's mm-hmm. cultural planning process and asking you all to come and speak publicly to our our networks of arts advocates. So I think I don't I, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit um, <laughs> for what for what you're, you're doing there. So but I do want to uh, just add one other point to what Sansan was saying. And I think this is what became clear to us when we were looking at the city's cultural plan and thinking about the importance of racial equity in light of arts advocacy is that if we're going to be disrupting the systems and if we don't want to continue having those same systems, that we're going to keep having the same outcomes if we don't change the inputs into the systems. And so if you have folks advocating for the arts without adding that lens of racial equity, you're going to continue to have this sort of disparate funding level that that we've been seeing happen in cities and states all across the nation all, all over time. So I think it's really important for all of us and for us, particularly in New York, to think about the importance of bringing in this racial equity lens to arts advocacy if we actually want to see the dollars being spent and allocated in different ways. So let me ask you, uh, Carrie and then Sansan, uh, what are some of the key components to consider when developing an effective advocacy plan or strategy? Can you give me some examples? Sure. I think research is a key plank to underpin any work going forward. We ended up providing funding to the Center for Urban Research, which is at the City University of New York's Graduate Center. It's a think tank run by John Mollenkopf, and we asked him to find a graduate student that he could work with and embed at the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs to begin providing research that would both help the city agency, but also help the sector writ large understand what the key issues are 
what are the facts and figures saying so that we can deploy our resources more effectively uh, via the cultural plan. And one of the findings from that research was there was an analysis of where arts education is happening in where the dollars are being spent by the Department of Cultural Affairs budgets, but also where arts education dollars are being spent via the Department of Education's budget. And what the research fellow found was that there was a high correlation between the lack of arts education and the high numbers of English language learners in particular schools. So what that tells us then is that we need to redeploy how we're spending arts education dollars in the city so that we are being sure that we're sending it into schools that have high English language learning populations, which makes a lot of sense to me because we know that the arts can be a great way for folks to pick up new vocabulary skills and incredible communication skills. So that finding ended up becoming a key part of the city's cultural plan and it has also been picked up as one of the big initiatives that the Department of Education wants to bring forward in this school year around its work, um, its work in arts education. Well, that's fantastic to see not only, you know, one, not only that you had the foresight to, to commission that work, but also to see it impacting a big system like the Department of Education, which is, you know, so much larger than the city's Department of Cultural Affairs. So that's really a fantastic and inspiring story. Sansan, what are some of the key components to consider when developing an effective advocacy plan or a strategy? And uh, would you share any examples? So I, I'm thinking about two key components. One of them, I very much agree with what Carrie was talking about in terms of the research. I would add that we also need research about what the key messages are. So essentially, what are the key messages that resonate with our target audiences? So to use those as a beginning entry point into starting the conversation with them. So I think that that's pretty critical just in terms of understanding and doing some of the polling work where our voters interested in supporting and hopefully taking that next step into voting and, and um, advocating for. So we've done some work with both kind of polling of voters around Massachusetts to create a hierarchy of why they value arts and creativity. So one of the things that we found is that they very much value education as a way of their child's growth. So this is a key kind of message frame that we've been developing to put out there. I think another one is that we are finding that in target audiences, it's uh, women, families of color, young parents uh, who really appreciate the arts. So is there a way that we can create message frames that appeal to them and then give them tools so that they can then go and talk to their legislators? So I think that that's one important component to developing an effective advocacy plan. I think another one that we've been testing is one that's really around art as a catalytic experience and that using that moment to actually try and bring political forces together. So we have the city of Lynn. It's a post-industrial city that's in the midst of a revitalization plan and it's a target city of the state government. So knowing that, 
I think we help support uh, Beyond Walls Lynn, which is a, a grassroots startup group to create 15 murals and underpass interventions with LED lights and then also with some neon vintage signs. So the power of that intervention of that festival of those murals helped create a kind of community cohesion but also a celebratory moment that was able to begin a shift from one of a downtrodden community to one where there was a great deal of excitement that's happening and a vision of uh, multiple immigrant communities who are all contributing to a revitalization effort. So what I would say is then that one of the key components is actually the art itself and how do we fund that art in a way that's strategic to support the continued kind of community mobilization that happens on a grassroots level, but then that actually moves up through the influencer chain so that it's bringing in also the elected officials. So I'd like to add to that and talk a little bit about a project we funded around creative aging, where we brought together a Lifetime Arts, which is an organization that provides creative aging programs for older adults. And rather than just give them a direct service grant where they would go in and, and provide a terrific program that would get older adults dancing, singing, playing instruments, uh, make, making pots, that kind of thing. We really wanted to try to make structural changes that would improve what is the largest aging creative program in the nation. And that program is run by the City of New York. It's funded through a partnership by the City Council and the Departments of Cultural Affairs and Aging. It supports creative programs in 250 senior centers across all five boroughs. And what we wanted to do was have Lifetime Arts train their teaching artist, which they do a terrific job of, but also they brought, got together with one of the lead researchers around uh, aging in general in the city and um, with the leading advocate for seniors in the city. So they brought together a researcher who is going to study the effects of these community-based interventions in the senior centers for older adults and is also going to evaluate the impact of the trainings on the teaching artist. While at the same time, Live On New York, which is the advocate that represents more than 100 senior serving agencies, is going to be working with city council, trying to be sure that the senior centers are getting funding in, in a timely manner and trying to get more funding to support these programs so that we can see it scale out across the system even further. So it's a, a nice program design where you're bringing the direct service provider together with an evaluator and an advocate who are collaborating to try to lift up an entire system. That's fantastic. And that's a really, a really eloquent uh, articulation of the importance of collaboration in developing an effective advocacy strategy. That's fantastic, Carrie. Thank you. Um, Sansan, I wanted to check in with you to see if there was any uh, other elements of the work that you haven't had a chance to speak to. 
Um, the one other component that I thought would be an interesting um, thing to raise and maybe to hear from the both of you is that I also am interested in the positioning of our foundations and the kind of voice that they can represent. And so I think at BAR, one of the things that we really look at is, can we be a credible source of good information? And can we be that source where media comes, where policymakers, you know, call and ask for it, where communities can ask us for information? And to Carrie's kind of earlier examples, I think the work that we do around commissioning reports that are uh, factual, that provide the evidence, that give antidotes, that build that collective understanding is super important. And I think that sometimes foundations as being separate from public agencies and separate from elected officials that have limited terms on our constantly in kind of a re-election kind of mode or from corporate interest. So I think that that's a unique positioning that foundations can have. And I just want to encourage people to really think about the long-term play and the long-term voice that we have um, in kind of our positioning around issues and advocacy. Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm not an expert on this at all, but I just want to highlight for the listeners who may not know that the New York Community Trust is a community foundation and operates as a public charity. So we have a little bit more wiggle room than perhaps some of our colleagues around how we are able to support lobbying and grassroots uh, advocacy and lobbying. And I would say that for BAR as a private foundation, um, we want to make sure that we have all the tools available to us that we can use to accomplish our mission and our vision. And so we consider advocacy as one of those. And so we have um, engaged a lawyer and have had several trainings of our staff. But I think there's a lot of information that's available out there. Um, and what foundations are being held to or community foundations is different from what our uh, grant are held to. So I think all around, it's just great to have this kind of training, um, just so that we can take maximum advantage of um, our, the power to create these platforms for our voices. I completely agree. And I think that's very well put having, you know, spent time at, you know, a foundation and at the government. My experience has been that foundations are taken quite seriously by the government and have a lot of social capital that they can use to create an evidence base usually well-researched, objectively uh, considered evidence base to provide advocacy for a course of action, whether it's a policy or a practice, that gets taken very seriously. And it's actually really valuable because any foundation doing this work responsibly, and the vast majority do, will do so from a nonpartisan point of view and where they're specifically just marshalling evidence for a course of action independent of advocating for any um, particular candidate or anything like that, which would be considered inappropriate. I find that foundations have this great opportunity. Some take advantage of it. Oftentimes, many don't just because they're, they're perhaps unclear on 
what would shade into lobbying. But as long as you're not engaging in direct lobbying, which is actually a fairly high bar to hit, uh, it, you'd have to be doing a lot of very specific things to engage in direct lobbying. A foundation can engage in advocacy, stay well within the law, and create a lot of public value. Carrie McCarthy, Sun Sun Wong, thank you for this. We hope that this follow-up to our earlier podcast with Penn Hill and Americans for the Arts has offered additional perspective and that you've gained a stronger sense of what foundations and funders can do to support these advocacy efforts. There really is no better advocate to affirm the significance of resourcing the arts than those who commit themselves to its practice by, for, and with communities. We'll continue to share information and case studies to help inform your work in this space. Thank you, Eddie, Carrie, and Sansan, for sharing your time, perspective, and expertise. And thanks to all who joined us. To find out more about what you can do to support arts advocacy efforts, continue to follow our Arts Advocacy Online Learning Series and follow Grantmakers in the Arts on Facebook and Twitter at GI Arts. Thanks so much for listening.